All right, here we are. Uh, it is Sunday, October 2nd. You have Zach Barnett, John Bryce. This is the Football Scoop Podcast. Sorry, I don't have the uh, super energetic intro. Uh, Scott is on his way back from the thrilling Auburn LSU game last night, which I'm sure we'll hear more about on the podcast in the coming week. Uh, John, how are you? I'm good, Zach. Good to uh, be on the show with you again this morning and good to uh, still be talking college football. It's always a good day to be talking college football. So I want to start with that Kentucky Ole Miss game. It had a, a little bit of everything. It was a fantastic atmosphere, super dramatic ending. I mean, what was your what was your main takeaway from that game? You know, my main takeaway is that I don't think Ole Miss played very well at all. I watched almost every single play of, of that contest, and certainly Ole Miss played well early, out to a 14-0 lead. Uh, both teams had some really bad special teams moments. You can also look at that and say, well, Kentucky – had some really good special teams moments with the uh, kickoff return that, that energized the Wildcats and helped get them back into the game. But uh, I thought that Ole Miss found a way to win a game that it really played overall pretty poorly, um, scored only three points in the second half, and yet still found a way to, to win that contest. And as talented as Will Levis is, um, and I've talked about this, I've written about this, his turnovers are an issue. And Kentucky had three turnovers, I think, in the fourth quarter, Yesterday, two in the final four minutes, both fumbles by Will Levis when his team was at the very worst going in for a uh, likely overtime forcing field goal. So th- th- that's sort of what sticks out the most to me about that game yesterday. Yeah, so I wanted to get your opinion on uh, those fumbles, and specifically that first fumble by Will Levis, because uh, Sean McDonough and Todd Blackledge, who I think do a fantastic job, they pointed out that that first fumble – on Levis, the, the hit that really popped that ball out, or at least prepared him to pop that ball out, should have been reviewed for targeting. What did you think about that? I couldn't I couldn't disagree more. Uh, and texted okay. some friends, including uh, some some guys in Kentucky yesterday as the play was going on, and um, and they didn't think it was was targeting either. Um, I thought Levis is the one who more lowered himself into the defender than the defender uh, actually lowered or, or projected himself into Levis. If you watch that replay, I couldn't, I was incredulous that they kept insisting it should have been reviewed for targeting. I didn't see that as targeting as all. I saw a defender getting in uh, a really very solid fundamental stance to make the tackle and lowering himself and going into Levis and Levis coming down into him. I did not see that remotely as targeting. I'm not sure um, where that, where that fascination came from, but I, I didn't think that was close. We get far more, targeting reviews than, than we've ever had in the sport. And I didn't give a thought to that when needing to be reviewed for targeting. Just goes to show that we need uh, every July, we need a nationwide seminar for everyone who watches college football about what is, it is not targeting and what is, it is not a catch. But I mean, to, to go to your point, Ole Miss didn't play that well, you know, scored three points in the second half, but still managed to beat a top 10 team. I mean, that's gotta be a, a encouraging in a way for Lane Kip. And yeah, I, in the last 17 minutes of that game, nobody scored and there was only one punt. I mean, it was just – maybe it wasn't the most crisp game of all time, but it sure was entertaining. And for, for Ole Miss, you know, for their defense to, to force two turnovers uh, on those final two possessions. I mean, the, the, the real killer mistake by Will Levis was not letting his uh, motioning receiver get set before he snapped the ball that wiped off what would have been the game when he touched down. I bet you that's the mistake – more so than the two fumbles that, that's really killing Will Levis in Kentucky right now. 
Yeah, and that, and that was certainly an avoidable mistake as well. And you saw Mark Stoops talking to Will Levis on the sideline about that, basically saying, just let him get set. Um, and, and, you know, it's it's the heat of the battle. You've marched right down the field. Um, it would have been interesting to see, uh, had they punched it in for a touchdown right there, what, what Ole Miss might have been able to do. I think there was still about um, four minutes left on, on the board at that point, um, or, or maybe that was the one with two minutes. Either way, um, Ole Miss had three timeouts and would have had time to potentially do something, but, again, hadn't scored a touchdown in, in 30 minutes of game time at that point. Yeah, so I, I wanted to move on. Uh, let's move on to the most shocking result of the day, which was TCU absolutely blowing out Oklahoma. I, I, I felt pretty confident all along that TCU – was going to win this game. Even if they were favored, they were six and a half point underdogs. Uh, I would have taken them as a six and a half point favorite. I was that confident TCU and that skeptical about Oklahoma, but I certainly did not see 55, 24 coming. Like, I mean, my, it was the, the, the Lincoln Riley's revenge in a way having Garrett, you know, Garrett Riley due to Oklahoma, what Oklahoma has done so long to so many big 12 opponents. I mean, they put their defense in a spin cycle with Max Duggan hitting every open receiver and then the, the running game popping off eight, almost nine yards of carry. You know, we just don't see, you know, Oklahoma loses games, but you have to go back a long ways to find them get blown out by a big 12 opponent. Yeah. And especially one in which it was over early in a lot of ways. I mean, Oklahoma tried to steady itself and, and tried to find some footing in that game to, to stay competitive, but, but TCU delivered a lot of knockout punches early. That's what stood out to me. You've got two two programs now being led by first-year head coaches, and um, TCU is playing really, really well, has done so two weeks in a row, found a way to win against SMU the week before after having a huge lead and then having to hold on, and then going out and blowing out Oklahoma. I think that's um, really encouraging signs for the Horned Frogs, and I think it tells you that the program – very solidly is trending in the right direction. I'll tell you what some uh, coaches pointed out to me via text yesterday as that game was unfolding, and that is um, Oklahoma's got some real defensive liabilities on its roster, some real holes on the defensive roster. Um, and, and if you follow the program closely, especially as you have in recent years, Zach, or like uh, with me being close to the Notre Dame program and following it, you know that when Brian Kelly left for LSU and when Lincoln Riley left for USC – they were programs that had won a lot and were in overall great shape. They were not programs without issues. And that's what that's what stands out to me really in a lot of ways about both Oklahoma and Notre Dame one month into the season is that they're very stable programs that have a, a short path to get where they want to, but there is potholes on that path. Oklahoma, the, the head roof hire was just uh, curious to me all along. Uh, obviously he, he worked with uh, – with Venables at Clemson, and so that that's where his Brent's uh, comfort came from. And obviously, Brent Venables is one of those guys you're never going to question his bona fides on the defensive side of the ball. But it's just if I'm an Oklahoma fan, I, the thing I'm questioning is how much of this defense is Ted Roof, how much of it is Brent Venables, and then obviously how much of it is just we just don't have the horses in year one of this program because. I mean, it, it doesn't get any easier from here. Like the Big 12 is, is going to be a gauntlet all season long. And so it, it's looking like an uphill battle for the Sooners for the first time in a long time. Speaking of uphill battles to uh, defend this, let's stay in the Big 12. Kansas State, uh, one of the big winners in the, in the conference last week, played another one of the big winners in the conference at Texas Tech and ran for 
I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it seemed like darn near at least 300 yards. And Adrian Martinez looks like exactly what uh, Kansas State thought they were getting with him. Yeah, Adrian Martinez. How about that game yesterday to follow up the performance against Oklahoma the week before? Four touchdowns total yesterday, Zach. Three of them on the ground, including uh, two different ones where he just bisected the defense and took it really straight up the gut and outran everybody. Um, You know how I feel about the Adrian Martinez story. It's really cool to see him have this success after um, just the way his whole career to to college started with the with the chaos going from his commitment to Tennessee to Nebraska and then obviously Nebraska just being an abject disaster the previous four years. So uh, K-State and Kansas have a lot of claim to being the epicenter of college football right now. Yeah, and uh, Kansas got a win yesterday. Its offense had been carrying them so far this season. They gained like 230 yards. But, you know, you can't question – I've always said you cannot question the winning DNA of the Kansas Jayhawks. They're going to find – that program finds a way to win. And uh, if they have to hold you to 11 points and then four missed field goals, that's what they're going to do because Kansas and they win. Yeah, I mean, um, the, my friends at, at Breaking Tea have launched their rock chalk football shirts now. So uh, that's really cool. Very clearly a, a football school. And uh, Kansas took a 14 nothing lead in that contest yesterday and then held on. And no, it wasn't pretty. And no, Iowa State isn't known, especially this year, for its deep, for its offense after losing Brock Purdy and Brees Hall and, and all those other guys from, from the squad of recent years. But when you can go up 14 to nothing and then vanquish an opponent that's had your number, that's been really good in your conference for a really long time and never score again, again, to me, that's such an encouraging sign. That's such a an, an element of belief in the program and of everything truly taking root. That's a that's a foundational win, in my opinion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, looking ahead to October 8th, if we thought, you know, in the preseason game day is certainly going to be in Tuscaloosa for a and Alabama, and if for some reason it's not there, it's probably going to be in Dallas for Red River. It turns out it's in neither of those places. It's in Lawrence for TCU Kansas. I mean, what a, what a great moment for them. Um, let's stay in the Midwest and uh, move up to uh, the, the Michigan-Iowa game. Uh, I, I didn't really see much of it. I, it sounds like you were uh, mostly locked into Kentucky Ole Miss, but it seems like, I mean, you were pretty confident. I was right there with you that Iowa just wasn't going to be able to hang with Michigan, and that's what happened. Yeah, and, and this was never really a game. I certainly spent a fair amount of time uh, channel hopping and, and having the game cast for the Iowa-Michigan game on as I was watching Kentucky Ole Miss. And um, Michigan just looks superior really and truly every single facet. Um, Michigan's quarterback played well. Michigan had far more speed on the perimeter. Michigan controlled the lines of scrimmage. Um, it was 27-14, and it was not that close. And it was – 27 to 14, and you never, ever felt like after about five minutes into the game that Iowa had any shot to win that contest whatsoever. I know we're getting ready to talk about another Big Ten team in disarray, but I would just tell you in leading into that, um, Iowa and Wisconsin have some dramatic issues right now, especially on the offensive sides of the ball. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, this is rock bottom for Wisconsin. I I mean, I'm not going to say it's not going to get worse, but – to host Brett Bielema in Illinois that seemed uh, just in college football wasteland for so many years. And then in year two, he comes into your house, holds you to two rushing yards, and beats you 34 to 10. 
it, I, I can't imagine a lower point if I'm a Wisconsin fan, probably in living memory. You probably have to go back to the early 90s. They're, they're, the Big Ten West is going to be one of the most even divisions in college football. Right now, they're alone in last place. You're exactly right, and uh, this is probably a, a stat more befitting your great Nuggets work that you do every single weekend of the college season. But I, and, and you took a little bit of it there. 37. 37 is the combined rushing total for Iowa and Wisconsin. Again, that's the combined net rushing total, total for Iowa and Wisconsin. You spilled the tea a little bit there by going ahead and saying that Wisconsin had a mere two rushing yards, two net rushing yards, their lowest total in seven years. Iowa at home had just 35 net rushing yards. Again, two Big Ten teams that we both know feast on ball control and um, a stingy defense, and they combined both at home, by the way, for 37 total rushing yards. Well, the the team that I think that we all had as the favorite in the Big Ten West going into yesterday uh, turned around and, and laid an egg and lost in Minnesota and lost to Purdue. And and Purdue, again, had control of that game by and large throughout. Um, now, Minnesota did not play well. I think uh, Tanner Morgan had three picks, a career high. Uh, but Purdue had a 10-0 lead in that game. Minnesota had to scratch and claw and fight its way back to tie the game at 10-all. And then Purdue, on the road, answered with the final 10 points in the fourth quarter. Um, a huge win for Jeff Brom. And as you noted, uh, every team in the Big Ten West has at least one loss already um, in, in conference standings, and it, it's going to be a completely wide-open race. Yeah, and one team that, that joined the win column at long last snapping FBS, nine-game FBS losing streak was uh, – Nebraska holding off Indiana at home. Indiana's not going to be very good this year. Nebraska's not going to be very good this year. But it was nice to see Mickey Joseph get the game ball from A.D. Trev Alberts in the locker room after they won that game. Yeah, and and we talk about Big Ten teams with with some real issues, Zach. And um, you can lump Indiana into that group. I really believe that. The, The Hoosiers already this year trailed at home at halftime against Idaho needed a a true miracle to get past Western Kentucky in overtime, absolutely got pantsed last week at Cincinnati. And then again, Nebraska very thoroughly controlled that contest last night to give them a win, coupled with how terrible Indiana was in 2021. um, That, that miraculous season, that, that storybook season that the Hoosiers had in 2020 is receding a lot quicker in the rear view mirror. Yeah, I wrote a column ahead of the 2021 season uh, wondering if Indiana could be the next Clemson. And not that they were going to go rip off national titles, but Clemson, you, you go back to Oregon. Those are the last programs that we've seen really level up, you know, from sustained success to where they moved up a tier in college football. And it looked like Indiana was on the verge of that, going from the, the, the bottom to the middle. And since then, they have reverted straight down to the bottom of the bottom. They've been the worst team in the Big Ten. Uh, let's stay in the Big Ten and talk about two more teams that are, are struggling. You had Northwestern forced five turnovers and turned those five turnovers into zero points in a loss at Penn State. And then you had Michigan State. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Mel Tucker said, quote, right now I'm a horseshit football coach. And then since then, they've been blown out by Minnesota and lost uh, by two touchdowns to Maryland. Yeah, and um... – that's the that's the ninety five million dollar Big Ten coach right there that um, has once again they they were an even better team a year ago 
than what Indiana was the previous year, kind of coming out of nowhere in the Big Ten and doing some great things last year for the Spartans. And this year, um, we know they lost Kenneth Walker. They lost some other key pieces. But I don't think anybody saw them getting blown out the way they did at Washington, losing uh, and giving up so many points at Maryland, even though Loxley has done a great job and Talia Tangabaloa is playing really well in charge of the Terps offense. It's just um, uh, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. There are some real identity crises going on right now, especially in the Big Ten West and especially by some programs. Again, like Iowa and Wisconsin have lived on their defense in their running game. You can make a, a strong claim that Michigan State has very much done the same, and they're just not getting it done. But before we move on to another struggling $95 million coach, uh, let's touch on that that Rutgers-Ohio State game. Uh, the, the, the game itself was not very interesting, but as, as Doug wrote about for our site, the, the post-game handshake was was pretty interesting. Yeah, it was actually uh, not even the post-game handshake. It was with just a few minutes left in the game yes. when uh, when Ohio State ran a fake punt. And we saw this in another game last weekend. I cannot remember – which game it was, but it also caused some gnashing of teeth. And it's a it's a play that's worked on, and you don't tell the guy not to execute it if he gets the look late in the game. It's what you've repped for all through camp, and the, the Ohio State punter got the look where he knew that nobody was going to be at home. It's why you rep that. Now Ohio State has it on tape. The other team that was comfortably ahead last weekend, I can't remember who it was. I think it was somebody out west. They did the same thing. Yes, I was, I was thinking of that as well. Yeah, um, and look, I get Russ, Rutgers coming in with a with a missile of a bit of a late hit there on the sideline, but I was stunned to see uh, how vehemently Ryan Day and, and Greg Schiano, two former colleagues who, who shared a lot of wins together under Urban Meyer, I was stunned to see how they responded to one another. Uh, in in that instance, you could uh, don't you don't have to be a a professional lip reader to see the language there uh, was not one that either's mother would endorse on television. <laughs> okay, let's move south. Uh, let's go down to the SEC West where uh, I think we all, or at least I saw A&M's magic running out. And, I mean, that you, you have another game where uh, your, your offense plays poorly, plays well below its talent level, and then you have Jimbo uh, speaking to reporters after the game saying, hey, the players are there, we're just not executing. Like, I mean, I, I've gone to the AFCA convention so many times and heard countless coaches from high school on up say, you know, it doesn't matter what you know, it matters what your players can execute. You are what you put on film. And still, I, mean, I don't know if Jimbo doesn't recognize that. I don't, I can't get inside the guy's head, but he's the only one that, seem, that, that doesn't seem to, to realize that what's, what's written on the script isn't showing up on film. And uh, yeah, I, it, it's bad. Yeah, it's really bad, and you have to think that um, there's a lot of restlessness setting in in College Station. We've already discussed multiple times on this platform uh, that there are some growing locker room issues there. You've got a much ballyhooed uh, consensus number one freshman class on campus now that, that a lot of people tabbed up there as, as, if not the greatest, one of the three to five greatest college football recruiting classes of all time. You still have a bunch of veterans that you were counting on. You lost Anaya Smith last week. I think his leadership in the locker room was extremely valuable. Um, and then the, to your point, Zach, the one thing, especially in college, that changes every year is the roster composition, the makeup of the players. Jimbo doesn't change. 
and Jimbo is the constant at Texas A&M, and the constant right now is uh, inconsistency um, and a lot of wins that have been ugly even when they've been wins, such as uh, against Miami. And then you look at this, and and you see them really uh, outclassed by a Mississippi State team that was coming off of its own struggles and had not looked particularly good against LSU. And I love this quote from Mike Leach after the game, Zach. I don't know if you got a chance to see it yet, but somebody asked Mike if, if he would consider that he has Texas A&M's number because now he's like uh, – nine and four against them all time. And Mike goes, are you sure? I thought it was 10 and three. So <laughs> I think that's, I think that's incredible. And I guess anyone who wants to uh, really own Texas A&M and, and maybe get a, his own honorary oil, Derek should just talk to Mike Leach. <laughs> I, I mean, I saw uh, Brent Zwerman, the, the beat writer, the a beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, you know, tweet out today that, uh, you know, it's looking in more than 50% likely that Jimbo will hire a play calling OC for next season. And I mean, I think we can all see where this is going and, and his, he tagged it with, Hey, if they go get a dynamic guy, then they're going to be a title contender in 2023. And I'm just like, we had a season where A&M finished unranked in 2021. They started number six off the uh, hype of a freshman class. That's not going to carry the team at this point. We're not even to mid season. You're unranked again. You're going to Alabama this week. Let's let's let the game come to us before we go ahead and put A and M in the twenty twenty three title mix. I mean, I know we got all the talent, but let let let's let the the production outrun the hype for once in A and M. Well, Zach, I think I think that that is the contract with the single most guaranteed money in all of college football. There are some others that pay a little bit more on a per annum basis, but I believe that the Jimbo Fisher contract has the single most guaranteed money if there was to even remotely be talk of a change there. And so when that's the case, when you know you're still on the hook for like literally $85 million guaranteed, you can convince yourself of a lot of crazy things. Yeah. Uh, so uh, one of the games I was most excited for this weekend, arguably the game I was most excited for was Alabama and Arkansas. And Arkansas gagged that game away uh, against A&M last week. Uh they had their SEC championship backs against the wall, come out, fall behind 28-0, uh, claw back, it's 28-23. You got Alabama back up at its own end, third and 15, back up quarterback in the game, and then he rips off a 77-yard run, and it's pretty much game over from there. I mean, what did you think? You you said it was going to be a vintage Alabama performance, and in, in some ways it was. They, they went out and went up 28-0, and then after that, they what was it, 21-3? Once, once Arkansas pulled within five, you know, what was your impression of, of the tie? Yeah, I, I tried to talk to a lot of people throughout the week about Alabama. And if Bryce Young doesn't get hurt, and I think the only reason we're 23 minutes into the show not talking about Bryce Young already uh, is, number one, indicative of the slate of college football games, and then number two, being that thus far and very pleasantly, it seems that all injury reports to Bryce Young uh, are that he'll be back soon, maybe not next weekend soon, but he'll be back soon. And that Nick Saban indicated it was not remotely as severe as what we thought. We saw him on the sidelines, back in full uniform, moving his arm a little bit better. Um, you know, when he first went down, I thought Bryce Young might have suffered the same injury that Tyler Buckner for Notre Dame just suffered in the, the week two loss against Marshall. And you think at that point, man, his season's over and that changes everything for Alabama. I thought it would have been a blowout if, if Bryce Young didn't get hurt. And I think that Alabama deserves a lot of credit for steadying itself in the wake of Bryce Young's injury. 
answering um, Arkansas's really gallant response to, to pull it to within 28-23 and very nearly 28-25, that, that two-point conversion, literally, I think, finished a half yard short. And then Alabama absolutely seized complete dominant control. Um, again, I talked to people at Alabama this week. They felt that they could absolutely exploit a lot the Arkansas secondary, we very much saw that mm-hmm. when Bryce Young was in the game. And then the other thing in listening to, to Nick Saban's comments, he really challenged this team. And I thought um, that he would challenge this team the way that he did. It just fit the narrative, Zach. It, it fit the narrative that when you start to whisper about the vulnerability of an Alabama team, especially when people are talking up the opponent, um, that that's tailor-made for what Nick Saban wants to do, and that's what we saw. Yeah, uh, losing the, the all-SEC safety, Jalen Catalan, for, uh, seems like it's a season-altering injury for Arkansas, unfortunately. Uh, you used a word there in your previous answer that uh, tickled my ear, gallant. That's uh, Love that word. Uh, it's It was not a word you would use to describe uh, LSU's comeback win over Arkansas, uh, excuse me, Auburn. I mean, Auburn. Yeah. 17 nothing lead, you allow five passing yards in the second half, and you lose the game at home. And I think I saw a stat tweeted out by one of the Auburn riders late last night or early this morning, the hours blend together, where it said that's still like maybe maybe Auburn doesn't have a third down conversion in the fourth quarter this year on offense, something oh like Like it was an unbelievable stat as to – uh, how abject uh, and unreliant the Auburn offense has been, particularly in late-game situations. Um, the young quarterback had his moments yesterday, but um, much like Will Levis really fumbling away the game for Kentucky, I thought that um, Baxter, you know, and he's a lot younger than Will Levis, but Auburn had all the momentum in the world when up 17 to nothing, and his fumble completely transformed that game. And, and frankly – um, LSU should should feel like it should have won that game thirty one to seventeen instead of twenty one to seventeen because from that fumble onward, um, the LSU Tigers, the Bayou Bengals, had complete control of that contest. Yeah, I, I was not aware of that Auburn stat uh, you mentioned. It seems like it, it would be impossible, but uh, that, that's what worried me from Brian Harson's perspective. And uh, obviously, he went with two SEC guys. And Mike Bobo and Derek Mason as his coordinators to to open his tenure. Got those they're gone. He went with two Boise guys to uh, coordinate his offense and defense this coming season. And it's like if that works out and those are your guys, that's great. But if if not, you're out of excuses at this point. And it seems like uh, Brian Harson's out of excuses. So yeah. uh, no, go well, ahead. I was just going to say yeah, and that's a that's a good segue to just sort of a a bigger picture college football observations act. And that is, um, you know, the loveliest village on the plains is um, pretty close to engulfing itself in fire. Once again, with just all the drama surrounding the Auburn program, we all know the reports that came out last week. We all know um, what people are telling us. Um, But when you look at Auburn and you look at Colorado um, and we've already seen three moves at the power five ranks this season already, I think those are the two programs that are getting now the most traction, the most attention for um, fair or unfair kind of being on that hangman's news watch. Yeah, uh, I've seen two quotes, I think, in the last week or so from Colorado's president. And uh, you, if you're a head football coach, 
You don't want the, uh, one quote from your president, and you sure don't want to. Yeah, we uh, we talked about it on this podcast last Sunday, and we point blank said change is imminent at Georgia Tech. It happened within hours of that podcast. Um, I can tell you that um, throughout this week and into yesterday, um, college coaches from around the country indicated, especially at Colorado, once again, change is coming much, much sooner than later. Um, let, let's stay in the SEC. Uh, we are 28 minutes into this podcast, and we haven't mentioned the number one team in the country, darn near losing to a very average Mizzou team. Uh, what did you think of that game? I think average is um, a bit of a compliment to that Mizzou <laughs> here. I've, I've watched Missouri a lot. I've, I like Eli Drinkwitz, so I need, to, yeah. I need to confess that and get that right out there. I think he's really sharp. Um, I think that game plan that Missouri had, last night against a Georgia team that clearly wasn't as dialed in uh, as what we're accustomed to seeing Georgia uh, was a brilliant game plan for the Tigers. Um, And I thought, I'll be honest with you, with the way Georgia played in that game and the way that Alabama played as it answered um, to not having Bryce Young, I would move Alabama back to number one in, in the polls. I think that Alabama is the best team right now. I think that Georgia has some incredible pieces and obviously is the defending champ, but that's a really bad Missouri team that got absolutely housed by Kansas State a few weeks ago, Um, a Missouri team that completely set back offensive football a week ago in in an overtime loss at Auburn. And it's a Missouri team that, um, you know, just has not looked well for the last season and four games under Eli Drinkwitz for for myriad factors. And it's, again, Eli's a really good coach, so I'm not putting it all on him. I don't think that's a a roster that anybody – uh, you wouldn't take two Missouri rosters for one Georgia roster, but the Tigers played great and had a really, really good game plan on both sides of the ball. Um, but they shot themselves in the foot or if they have that long run that goes down inside the one yard line and don't get the false start, it might've truly brought an end to Georgia's winning streak and, and Georgia's reign as, as the talked about defending national champion and the number one team, they settled for a field goal. And much like with Auburn LSU, Missouri settling for that field goal gave Georgia all the space it needed to dive back in and eventually take control of the game. Okay, let's move over to uh, the biggest game of the day. Uh, NC State went on the road uh, at Clemson. You know, I, I wrote nuggets that I think it's a little bit unfair, but also reality that uh, I thought the, the, the NC State's up ch- upset chance boiled down to a single play late in the, late in the second quarter. DJU throws a, a go ball to Joseph Ngata. Uh, it's tipped by the NC State corner. The, the safety coming over to help has it in his fingertips, hits the ground. I mean, you see that play 10 different times, at least in a, in a college football Saturday. But I, I was like, that. knowing what I do in, in looking at each box score, I've learned the durability of a halftime lead, specifically when you're, when you're a Clemson with the big game experience that they have playing at home. Uh, against an upstart NC State team, I was like, okay, if, if Clemson scores here, they're going to win the game. And uh, DJU and Will Shipley made some plays, a fantastic throw from DJU, finding Will Shipley down the sideline on what was supposed to be a dump-off route that just turned into a wheel. And Clemson scored, and next thing you know, it's 30-13 ball game. Yeah, and, and it was. And, um, you know, NC State, what, had like a 10-6 lead or something like that early on. Yeah, um, but I, I never felt like Clemson was panicked or that the Clemson wasn't where it needed to be 
in that contest. Um, this is a Clemson team that impresses me a little bit more each week. It's not a perfect team by any stretch. Um, and I still think that there's a clear class divide right now in college football, Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State, that top three. I would have Clemson and Michigan next, and then you could make a, a bunch of arguments for some other teams in that realm. Um, but that's where I see it now. I think Clemson can be a little bit more into that mix with with Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State by the end of the year because of the talent that Clemson has on both sides of the ball because I do see the Tigers getting better every week and because they're supposed to get back Brian Jose potentially as early as next weekend, and this guy's getting ready to be a, a first-round NFL draft pick on the defensive line. And so when you can add that back into the equation and your defense is already really talented and good, obviously that that's going to be a huge addition for Clemson. Um, but I just never thought that – that, it, that NC State had a, logis, uh, a legitimate chance to win that contest last night. And um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pick NC State again on a neutral side or, or even at home. I just think that, that Clemson uh, is far and away the better team, and Clemson is far and away right now the best team in the ACC. That's not to say that, that they couldn't lose a game uh, on some Saturday. But once again, it, it's Clemson and a lot of people chasing after Clemson. Yeah, I'm going to throw another team into that that second mix, but behind the big three that you didn't mention, not that you uh, didn't intentionally meant, uh, leave them out, but uh, they're they're an easy team to forget. I they didn't play last week. I left them out of my Super 16 poll. Shame on me. They're back in there this week. That's Oklahoma State, who went on the road uh, against a tough, tough Baylor team. It was really in control for most of the game. I mean, Baylor scored to open the game. Oklahoma State scored the next 23. Uh, Baylor. Baylor made it close twice in the second half, and both times Oklahoma State uh, stepped up and shut the door. Uh, I, I, I thought all along that's that's been the big, the best team in the Big Twelve, and, and a, a month and a week into the season, they're they're playing like it for sure. Completely, completely agree. Um, and again, they're doing it having had to replace Jim Knowles, the great defensive coordinator who left last December to join Ryan Day's staff at Ohio State. Um, but that defense is still playing really well. They're playing with a lot of confidence, um, and they're just playing really smart football in all phases. I did get to see a fair amount of that game. Um, Oklahoma State looked really fast to me, had some really dynamic, explosive plays um, that I don't even think they had a year ago, uh, even when I saw them in the the Fiesta Bowl against Notre Dame. I think that um, this Oklahoma State squad has a little bit more top-end ability to it. Yeah, I think uh, maybe the most underrated ability that, that Mike Gundy has is to find fast, productive skill guys. They, they lose people uh, year after year, as, as everyone knows, and they, they replace and replenish unlike anyone else. I mean, it's just, where does Gundy find these guys? But he's always his, – his skill positions, I mean, his offense, his defensive line has finally reached that point uh, where it caught up with his offense, and that's why I think you've seen Oklahoma State. They're 18-2 in their last 20. Seven to one in their last eight against top twenty-five teams. Uh, they're far and away the top program in the Big Twelve at this point to me. Um, okay, let's go out west. Uh, two teams that are going to play the game of the week in this conference coming up this week. Utah had a big win over Oregon State, and UCLA had arguably a bigger win Friday night at home against Washington. Yeah, UCLA certainly had the bigger win of the two. I, I know I picked. Washington to win that game and immediately regretted it um, before halftime on Friday night, um, just with the way that the UCLA was clicking and, and Washington kind of self-destructed 
Um, really super impressed with what uh, Utah did because um, you know well, Zach, I talk almost every week about Oregon State. Um, the Beavers had very nearly upset USC the week before. And here's where you know how established your program is and, and where you are as a program and that you, you have all the right um, pieces of culture in your program. That game was 21-16 yesterday um, at Utah. And the Beavers had a little bit of momentum. They pulled within five. And one of Utah's touchdowns at that point had been a pick six uh, off the Oregon State quarterback. All Utah does is go out and score the final 21 points of the game to win convincingly 42-16. to 16. Um, Again, a program win for Utah, very much um, a win that shows how established the Utes are. Yeah, I think this season, uh, at least the – you know, top of the, the best teams in college football would be a lot different if the end of that Florida game had played out differently. Uh, Utah you know, drove near the Florida end, was throwing into the Florida end zone with a chance to win the game, obviously. Uh, Cam Rising threw an interception. Since then, Utah's pummeled Southern Utah, pummeled San Diego State, pummeled Arizona State, and then uh, those are three average to bad teams. We can say three bad teams, but then pummeled a good Oregon State team. So, Coming up, their next two, they've got UCLA, they've got USC. So uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where, where they stand after that. Uh, let's, talk, let's move back to the East Coast, touch on um, three ACC games we want to talk about. Georgia Tech, Pitt, uh, North Carolina, humbling Virginia Tech, and then uh, Louisville pulling out a one-point win over Boston College. No, Boston College won that game. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. 34-33, Boston College over Louisville. Yeah, a really, a really damaging win for Louisville, a damaging loss for Louisville. Um, and, and in that regard, it was a damaging win that Boston College inflicted on Louisville. Um, we all know the, the landscape there. Scott Satterfield's got a lot of games that he still needs to win down the, the ledger of this season. They found just a way to lose to Boston College yesterday after at home. They just found a way to barely lose to Florida State a couple of weeks before that. And then, of course, they opened the season with an absolute dud at Syracuse, which, by the way, is now 5-0, and so shout out to the Orange. But, um, you know, a, a really, really completely damaging loss for, for Louisville and Scott Satterfield. North Carolina has really good offensive players, really good skill talent on that side of the ball, and they've got some pieces on defense. They just don't have enough of them, and they don't have enough depth. Virginia Tech's got a lot of work to do and a long way to go. And then shout out to Georgia Tech, to Brent Key, Chip Long, Mike Daniels, all those guys that got that program's first win, snapping a nine-game losing streak against fellow FBS foes. They were 21-and-a-half-point underdogs, and it was not a fluke in a 26-21 win. Um, Georgia Tech played free. I thought um, Key and, and Chip Long and, and Mike did a lot of good things with Sims, the quarterback. I mean, you could see a team that played together, and I thought maybe that was one of the most telling comments. Brent Key, the first Georgia Tech alum at the head of the programs uh, since Bill Curry, uh, and that's decades and decades ago, um, but that team played together, and that's why they won, and we've already touched on how the ACC is everybody chasing uh, Clemson. Now Georgia Tech joins a, a bunch of people that are one game out of the division lead, so there you go. Uh, we, we've mentioned uh, the, the, the top two programs on on watch right now are Auburn and Colorado, but uh, I, I'd add Louisville, you know, to the back burner of that mix. The, Louisville's two and three; they're at Virginia this week, and then these are this is how they close their season against home against Pitt, 
who uh, obviously lost to Georgia Tech yesterday, but uh, is it is still a good team. Home against Wake, home against James Madison at Clemson, home against NC State at Kentucky. Yeah, they're capable of losing any one of those games. They can win almost any one of those games, but they're completely capable of losing any one or almost all of those games. Uh, this is uh, another ACC game, one that uh, I regretted almost as soon as I picked it, uh, was was Wake against Florida State. Uh, I think Florida State's been a great story so far. Uh, they've been selling out games for the first time in like seven years. Uh, big game at home. I thought that uh, I thought the momentum would carry them, and uh, the momentum wasn't enough for for Sam Hartman and Wake Forest, who I'd say after after these last two weeks, I think it's safe to say that that Wake is clearly the best, the second best team in the ACC. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, and honestly, um, Wake was so close to beating Clemson, and I think we would be talking about. Sam Hartman uh, as an emerging Heisman Trophy contender. I think he's playing that well. I think what this does is show just Dave Clawson is an absolutely fantastically elite college football coach. And um, he develops guys. His teams play very fundamentally sound. They almost always have a chance to win every single game, yet they almost always don't have a talent-adjacent roster to whoever they're lining up against. And that goes back to – Coaching and belief, player buy-in, and player, player development. Your dog agrees with me. I love it. That's actually uh, my child. That uh, <laughs> only sounds like a dog. Okay. Um, it, it's it's a real shame that the ACC doesn't do the, the divisionless structure that the AAC, the, the Big Twelve, and now the Pac-12 do. Because I'd love to see a, a Clemson Wake rematch in the ACC championship game. Uh, I think yeah, at this point. I expect Clemson to, to be able to walk in. They still got Syracuse, but uh, I think Clemson's the heavy, heavy favorite to, to win the Atlantic. And then in the Coastal, you got North Carolina and Duke at 1 0. And, you know, those are good programs and good teams. Mike Elko has been one of the surprises in year one at Duke, but none of those teams are good to win. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And um, I think the ACC, much like the Big Ten, is moving to do away with those divisions. But, um, like, like so many things in college football, it's happening uh, later rather than sooner as it should. So much like my contention of the expanded playoff. Okay, so uh, we are uh, 42 minutes into a podcast that we said pre-show, pre-taping we wanted to keep it 30, and we can't even blame Scott on it this time. The, the other beings in my home are getting reckless, restless. So let, let's talk about one last game, uh, and then we'll shut her down. Let's go back to Friday night, and arguably the most disappointing team in college football right now is Houston, losing at home to Tulane before mostly empty stadium. Uh, Tulane playing a third-string quarterback. Houston playing its fifth-string quarterback in Clayton Toon, and uh, Tulane pulls out the win. Yeah, I don't. You're you're exactly right. I mean, Houston was being talked about to open the season as the program that could be this year's Cincinnati. And a lot of people thought they might be a, a smidge better than the Cincinnati team that crashed the playoffs last year. And, and certainly there was belief that there was considerable talent on both sides of the ball. Um, but you've written about it. Olgerson's comments, he sounded miserable. He's looked miserable on the sidelines. Um, that's that's a program that's, that's showing some signs uh, of the cracks being far more than just surface cracks and that there's uh, – you know, there's some something really wrong 
with that program that it's lost some of the games that it's lost and that it, it can't win that contest at home on a Friday night against a Tulane team that is among the biggest bounce-back teams in all of college football this year. But that's still a game that, that Houston should have won. Yeah, uh, ESPN had a great shot of Dana after the game. He's, he's doing the alma mater with a 10,000-yard stare. And I, I would love to be able to sit down and ask him at this point, if, I, if I'm someone close to him, sit down and ask, do you even want to do this anymore? Because he looked, he looked done after their win over Rice, and then they go out and, and lose to a two-lane team they had no business losing to. Uh, I think I, I, I'd love to know that because I, I, I just don't know if his heart's in it at this point. There you go. Houston's not playing like like his heart is in it. No, no, they're they're not playing like a passionate team, and that's what his teams have played with. You made reference to Rice, so I'll, I'll use that as a segue in tying up my last two mentions here. Rice three and two, I believe the program's best start through five games since maybe 2015. Uh, Mike Bloomgren, Marco Regalado, uh, doing some nice things there. Marco helping out a lot in recruiting, and then shout out to my guy Mike Willis, the Princeton offensive coordinator. I appreciate the threads. And the Tigers are the reigning Ivy League champs. And once again, 3-0 after a huge win against rival Columbia yesterday. There we go. Uh, the only podcast in college football that, that, that's going to talk SEC and Ivy League ball within the All same 45 minutes. Yeah. All right. The, that, that's been it for us. Thanks for uh, joining us. We'll be back uh, most likely Tuesday. The last couple of weeks we've been wanting to do a Tuesday podcast. And we've had firings to talk about on Monday. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, I, I'm I'm Zach. This is John. Uh, thanks for ever, thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. We'll see ya. <laughs>